sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is What's Health Got to Do With It, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, your trending health headlines in about 60 seconds. Then, our monthly medical roundtable with our experts answering your questions. And later, Breast Cancer Awareness Month is still here, and an expert joins us to talk about what's happening for breast cancer imaging. But first, here are your trending health headlines in about a minute. In the ever-evolving world of health, no need to check the weather report as this past month brought a whirlwind of healthcare news. A harsh reality check as studies show fast food could be a one-way ticket to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We're also on the edge of a healthcare cliff with projections of a GI doctor shortage by 2025, raising concerns about access to care. Shifting gears, the Biden administration issued new rules for sepsis care, aiming to improve patient outcomes. But the shadows lengthened as West Nile virus resurged, keeping public health officials on high alert. In a twist of labor dynamics, two major healthcare strikes rocked Kaiser Permanente and Alina Health, stirring debates on worker rights and patient care. And amidst all this, the FDA's new Digital Health Advisory Committee points to a future where technology and innovation play a more prominent role in healthcare. And that's your monthly healthcare headlines in about a minute. Joining us today to add perspective and delve into these headlines for our monthly medical roundtable show are our medical powerhouse team. And this time we have a dynamic duo, Dr. Jamie Knuken. She is a practicing gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic, Florida. She currently serves as the co-director for digital health and practice integration for the Department of Medicine and the director of clinical practice for the Division of Gastroenterology. Dr. Kanukin, welcome to our program. Thank you, Joe. I'm very excited to be here and, and chat with uh, you and all the listeners today. I'm excited to have you, too. And a vet of this show, Dr. Dacre Knight. He is director of the Ehlers-Danlos Clinic at Mayo Clinic, Florida. He's a practicing internist. Dr. Knight, welcome, as always. Yes, thank you so much. So glad to be here. It is good to have you back. Let's start uh, with where we find ourselves in the world of healthcare administration, if you will. And specifically, I'm talking about physician shortages and strikes. This past month brought us strikes at Kaiser Permanente and Alina Health. Moreover, as demand for healthcare providers continues to increase, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reported gastroenterology will be among the top fields with the highest predicted provider deficit. Gastroenterology, or GI, is among the highest of the projected shortages alongside cardiology, hematology oncologists, and pulmonologists as early as 2025. That's just two years from now. 
The decrease in gastroenterologists and hepatologists combined with the increased population has led to and will further demand for advanced practice providers. Now, HRSA estimated a supply of 15,540 providers and a demand of 17,000 providers by 2025. Dr. Kanukin, for those who are uninitiated, what is a gastroenterologist or hepatologist? What what kind of doctor is that? Yeah, um, well, what I, I would tell my kids, the easy answer is I'm a poop doctor, but I think it's a little <laughs> bit more complex than that. Um, a gastroenterologist uh, and a hepatologist, which I'll speak to briefly, is a physician who's undergone training in a general medical training, internal medicine, and then further goes on to specialize within the field of gastroenterology and hepatology. Within our field, our major, major focus is in the care of patients with gastrointestinal illnesses. However, you'll find that within gastroenterologists, we further subspecialize, uh, treating specific conditions like I do, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, other providers treat esophageal disorders, pancreatic disorders, different uh, gut-related motility disorders. And then in the world of hepatology, they really are focusing on liver-related conditions. So when I read this, and I seem to read this amongst a lot of different specialties, normally it's primary care and less about the specialties. So I guess my question to you, I mean, what's going on? What, why this shortage in your mind? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's hard to pinpoint one exact um, reason. And, and as you point out, there are several specialties and, and GI is one of the leading specialties, but certainly not the greatest that's going to see this shortage over the coming years. Um, but the population is aging. So more patients are requiring either preventative care or symptom-based care for various GI conditions. Uh, gastroenterology as a specialty population is aging as well, with nearly 50% of our workforce being over 55 years of age. And so that also might be true of some of our other subspecialties with aging physicians. Up to 20% of physicians, and this may be due to variety of factors, but certainly with around the pandemic, 20% had earlier retirement. So it, further exacerbating the shortage that we're seeing uh, that we may not be prepared for. Demand continues to exceed the supply despite the increasing number of training programs throughout the country. Uh, what we're finding is that more physicians are leaving or retiring than we can possibly train because a training uh, from start to finish can be anywhere um, from, you know, five to potentially 10 years. So it wow. takes time. It's not like we can just churn out more tomorrow. Uh, the field itself um, drives revenue for many hospital systems because we're procedural based. And thus, um, there seems to be this greater demand for gastroenterologists as opposed to other subspecialties. I think that, you know, the increasing administrative burden that all of us feel within medicine, uh, especially within GI, we see a need for prior authorizations for medical therapies. I just saw two patients this morning that have had over six weeks delay in getting their medicines due to the prior authorization process, wow. but it's quite taxing for our team members. And then I think the, the elephant in the room is uh, private equity has moved into gastroenterology. And so non-physician-owned practices um, have, have really maybe resulted in a tipping scale of, of how physicians are perceiving work-life balance and, and quality of life. So it's, I don't think we can pinpoint it to one thing. Uh, I guess there's an opportunity for, for each of those to, to be possible solutions, but um, it's, it definitely is impacting our field. Let me ask you just a, a quick follow-up to that. Uh, you mentioned private equity entering to the field, and we've covered some of that on this show. Can you tell, what does that mean uh, when you say that? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, there's different ways that um, physicians can exist within um, healthcare teams. Um, you know, Mayo Clinic, we here are more of an academic center, and so we, we are employed by the hospital. Out in the community, um, physicians can be employed by a hospital, or they can actually be employed by um, a private practice group, and then, you know, um, sort of contract with the hospital. Um, but what we used to think of those solo practices where there was a single provider, um, maybe a a, a non-physician provider joining them, as well as a nurse. Um, those have really been sort of the way of the past. And we're starting to see that these smaller groups and even larger groups are being owned by central private equity companies so that uh, they are investing in the future of gastroenterology. But I think that a lot of the autonomy that physicians and um, our colleagues face uh, might be becoming a little bit less uh, robust as, as private equity moves into 
uh, you know, optimize on the or capitalize uh, maybe for a better term sure. uh, on the on the revenue that can be generated by these procedural based fields. Understood. Let me kind of just slightly kind of ask a, a, a follow up on kind of part of what I mentioned earlier. I know we've just talked about the GI shortage, but we're also talking about strikes. And so uh, we've seen a strike in uh, the West Coast and some of the East with Kaiser Permanente, a strike in the Midwest with Alina Health, some of these involving doctors. Um, why do you think these strikes are going on? Uh, what, what do you, what's your mindset as you read those headlines? Yeah, as as someone who um, has worked for two different institutions that had strikes while I was working there, I certainly really? saw the impact of of what what a strike will do to patient care, and um, definitely the, the the people that end up being um, sort of victims of of these um, uh, strikes are are really the patients. But you know, I think these themes um, have existed within medicine for some time. I think. COVID exacerbated that, less people going into the healthcare field in general. And so understaffing, you know, but still needing to provide high level quality care leads to sort of a workload pay mismatch uh, that we're seeing across these organizations that currently um, are, you know, struggling with uh, with this. Um, strike, strikes, I think, are complicated within healthcare as opposed to non-healthcare industries uh, because of, again, like I've called out that impact that it has on patient care. I think what's important to understand or take away is that it's our teams need to feel valued, no matter which member of the team you are. Um, you know, from the person that's checking checking patients in to um, you know uh, all the way to you know the administrative levels of hospitals, of course, with a lot of healthcare providers in between. Um, but the strikes within healthcare really um, immediately impact and can potentially have both short and long term impacts on patient outcomes. So I I, I know that both sides probably. Um, don't take that decision very lightly. Uh, it's a, I guess it's an opportunity to try to negotiate to improve the working conditions uh, for all the team members. Um, but oftentimes the, you know, the, the impact that it can have on patient care related to the immediate um, reduction in workforce ha- has been quite challenging. Uh, Dr. Kanukin, one more question on, on these topics. Um, a, a listener may be out there and may be wondering, do I need to be worried uh, if, if I mean, this is a, a rare possibility of a strike with doctors? What, what would you say to folks as they read these headlines? Um, do they need to be worried? I mean, I think, you know, um, we as as physicians took a Hippocratic oath and to do no harm. And, and so I think that we oftentimes will work in conditions that maybe are not ideal. Uh, I think in doing no harm, we need to ensure that the working conditions that uh, all team members have um, do not compromise patient safety, right? That's the idea of do no harm. You know, all of healthcare, even outside, as you mentioned, is facing these shortages. I think it's exacerbated in the the setting of COVID-19. There's new challenges, new demands that are both unexpected and unanticipated. I think, you know, I, I'm not worried because I actually recently got back from uh, our uh, national conference at the American College of Gastroenterology, and right. we also have another large American College uh, Gastroenterological Association. Um, but, you know, I think I'm seeing I'm seeing these conversations at high levels. Um, there are solutions that are, uh, you know, uh, that are being discussed and uh, ways that we combat this. So know that there are opportunities for us to try to prevent the downstream consequences of these shortages to continue to maintain that high level of patient care that we all strive for. Um, I think with artificial intelligence becoming something that, you know, I'm sure a topic that you will discuss on 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 this if you haven't already, uh, it's it's going to allow us in different ways within healthcare. I don't think it's going to replace the clinical care that we provide, but it's going to allow us to optimally care for our patients, maybe with less resources. And so some of those shortages may be less felt because we'll be able to have um, a dictation, uh, ambient dictation system, be able to write the notes, right? Something that me, uh, that myself and, and my colleagues as providers are, are spending time doing um, and spending lots of time doing. So there are ways that we can augment um, high-level care with some of the technology that's coming out. I, I know that there's a push for further training programs. Um, we need to put um, solutions in a, aiming and retention, right? You know, it's much sure. more expensive to train new new team members than it is to retain the great ones that we have. 
Um, and then I think, you know, something that is also, a, you know, a hot topic, but something that we really, I think, pride ourselves in is the high-level care and partnership that we have with physician extenders uh, here at Mayo Clinic, um, that we work as a team. And so it really can allow us to touch more lives and see more patients. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and if you're just joining us, it's our monthly medical roundtable, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Let's go to a very different topic, and that has to do with the condition of sepsis and more specifically paying for this condition. Now, sepsis is the body's extreme response to an infection, and it affects 1.7 million adults in the U.S. annually. It can stem from fungal, viral, or bacterial infections, and treatment delays of even a few hours can undermine a patient's chance of survival. Now, the Biden administration put in a rule which was finalized in August, which ups the ante for hospitals, setting specific treatment metrics that must be met for all patients with suspected sepsis, which could help save some of the 350,000 adults and 15,000 kids who die of infections annually. Still, because the rule applies broadly, it's triggered pushback for its lack of flexibility. Dr. Knight, I just defined it, but I, I know you can do a better job than I did. Uh, can you tell us again, what is sepsis? Who's at risk? Yeah, certainly. And, and I think you did define it, describe it well. It is a condition. It's also sometimes called septicemia, too, uh, which really what is that describing is, is a bloodstream uh, poisoning, um, if you go to the root of it. Uh, but that poisoning, as you pointed out, is not necessarily toxin or poison as, as we think about it. Uh, of course, we've learned a lot over the centuries in medical practice. Uh, but in this case of sepsis, it comes from infection. So uh, live pathogens, whether it's bacteria, viruses, or, or, or fungus. And uh, yeah, so it's the body's response to fighting those can actually do harm to the body, as, as we learned, certainly seeing some of those cases of COVID infections where there's severe immune responses that can really shut down some of those organ systems. So sepsis is, is a very, very critical condition in, in many cases. Um, and as you pointed out, it doesn't take long. It could just be a matter of hours before organ systems start shutting down. Uh, so if it looks like there's signs of severe infection, whether that's high fevers, shortness of breath, maybe change in mental status and things like that, we would encourage any patient with those signs or symptoms to go seek immediate medical attention to salvage what organ function and things uh, can be done to help treat it. Um, so uh, that's kind of just the, the backdrop of it. Understood. Is there a specific group of people who are more at risk for developing sepsis than others? Yeah, sure. And and we had uh, observed some of those increased risk factors too when we were encountering patients with COVID infections. Uh, but yes, and by and large, sepsis has a mortality rate that it ranges very broadly. So it can uh, be from around 10 to 80%. Uh, so, so you can understand the nature of the severity of the illness and sure. the condition itself. If a healthy person, um, otherwise no major medical issues comes in, they have a mortality even of, of 10%. So that's quite high, just starting from that. Uh, but yes, there are certain risk factors you point out. So age is a big one of them. Um, and we, we kind of change our um, uh, alarms and, and alert to what could be outcomes and things with patients as they get older. So over the age of 65, other chronic medical conditions. So, you know, chronic kidney disease, um, cardiac conditions, um, and, and certainly immune related deficiencies, hypertension, uh, things like that. So those can certainly weigh into uh, worse outcomes. So we have to take those with a little higher attention. Now, obviously sepsis is dangerous, but I'm, I'm curious what what are these new rules that the administration put in for management? I mean, what 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 are those? Yeah, so I think just to give a little bit more background on this, take, let's take a step back and understand what we do for sepsis. So, as, as I mentioned, it kind of looks like an infection, but maybe in a severe setting or severe situation of high fevers, um, 
trouble breathing, uh, change in mental status, delirium, things like that. Um, and so, you have, as I mentioned, you encourage patients to seek immediate medical attention. So what is done then is uh, if it does look like those, you know, signs are there. So temperature is elevated, maybe elevated white blood cell count, what's called leukocytosis, uh, maybe low blood pressure and things like that, if those are there. And if it looks like that the most likely cause is an infection, uh, then we want to start uh, treating with antibiotics that could kill whatever organism that is as soon as possible. So we have to think about if there's any clues based on where the patient came from or what are the medical conditions they have, uh, if there are certain organisms that they might be um, higher uh, likelihood of encountering. Um, so have they had recent travel or maybe they've been exposed to someone with COVID or maybe they have a history of urinary tract infections or or they have uh, recent had intervention, recent intervention, either gastrointestinal intervention, uh, surgery, or uh, maybe urinary catheters and things like that. So different organisms can affect the body in different ways, and then we can try to target those with certain types of antibiotics um, that would hopefully kill that organism as soon as possible. In conjunction with that, now we want to support the rest of the body systems as well as we can. So. If when we see there's this profound immune response and a result of that can be some of the organ failure and then decreased blood pressure when we want to increase the blood volume as best as we can, as immediate as we can. And the best way of doing that is uh, providing intravenous fluids. So antibiotics, IV fluids are kind of the, the quick mainstay just to, to get things started, of course, as we're doing laboratory evaluations and understand the function of other organ systems, x-rays, and things like that to see what we can find internally, if there's any other clues of anything else that's going on that we need to treat. So, uh, yes, yeah, so that is a setting of what is done. So, antibiotics, fluids, things like that, right. vital sign monitoring, et cetera. Um, there are these you know proposals of putting some in place some um, bundles and and some um, quality metrics and things like that to see that those treatments are adequate and they're in place um, um, at a in a timely fashion. So that's what I think you're prefer referring to here. I mean, I listen to that and I go, okay, getting timely treatment sounds like the right thing to do. So my only question would be, why would there be any controversy about? Yeah, that that is a very good question, and that's as that's a big question. And because you know, when we start talking about you know guidelines are great, we have you know evidence that backs up our guidelines that says that we use these types of antibiotics in these types of setting. We use this amount of fluid uh, with a patient with this history um, or conditions, whether or not they have heart failure or not, or whether they have high blood pressure or low blood pressure, or what type of medications there are. So the guidelines are very helpful. Uh, the problem is that when we get into too much of a routine of just relying on these, it, it can sometimes what um, some would call um, uh, cookbook medicine, right? That we're kind of doing things reflexively without thinking about bigger pictures or deeper issues that might be going on, because certainly there can be a lot of individual differences from one patient to the next. So the controversy therein lies in if we're getting too comfortable of just following a specific recipe for a broad number of patients where there might be some individual differences, then we could actually do harm to patients when we're not looking at, at all the full scope of it. So there's definitely a balance there of getting a large number of patients the best and, and evidence-based treatment as quickly as we can, but also just not relying on kind of reflexive uh, uh, practice where we're not looking at, um, you know, we're not losing the, the forest through the trees. Got it. What, one last point on this, uh, Dr. Knight, is do you think the new rules will help? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I like to remain an, an optimist as, as much as I can. Um, and, and we have seen, you know, some degree of of these in in practice, um, not just these specific rules for sepsis, uh, but other quality metrics and things like that uh, that we apply in the hospital setting, um, whether it comes to like wound care monitoring, you know, uh, uh, trying to avoid uh, pressure sores, uh, trying to prevent DVTs and pulmonary embolisms and things like that. And, uh, you know, you know, maybe I am just an optimist, but I think that those are actually good. And, and there is data to support that. But, um, you know, it, it, we also have to be worried about, you know, just 
putting our uh, practitioners under uh, a burden of you know kind of meeting all of these rules and and stipulations and things like that because it is kind of an inconvenience when you're you know getting all these alerts and alarms and you're going through your medical records and every you know every 10 seconds a new alert comes up that you know got to make sure this metric is met and things like that so we do have to be mindful of that but i think i think those are you know with the best intention if for good reason to help prevent um, worse outcomes for our patients, uh, whether it's not only sepsis treatment and, and outcomes from sepsis management, but also there's other things I mentioned. So, you know, pressure sores and um, and and pulmonary embolism and, uh, and blood clots and things like that. So, uh, those help have helped in those cases, and I'm hopeful that it will help in this case as well. Let's go to yet another topic, and and this uh, it breaks my heart as someone who, who who will not mind stopping at a fast food joint every once in a while. But one of the headlines from this month was that eating fast food is associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This is a potentially life-threatening condition in which fat builds up in the liver. Now, researchers discovered that people with obesity or diabetes who consume 20% or more of their daily calories from fast food have severely elevated levels of fat in their liver compared to those who consume less or no fast food. And the general population has a moderate increase of liver fat when one-fifth or more of their diet is fast food. Dr. Kanukin, this is heartbreaking news for some of those us that doesn't mind stopping at these places once in a while. But start us off. What is non-alcoholic liver disease? So actually, uh, this is very timely. In July of this year, they actually changed the nomenclature to be more inclusive okay. um, and less um, and less potentially um, stigmatized. So some non-alcoholic liver disease was also sort of synonymous with fatty liver disease, okay. which you can imagine some people yep. may take offense to that. So it really falls under the umbrella of steatotic liver disease, okay. um, which the new term is actually metabolic dysfunction associated steatotic liver disease. Wow, that's a mouthful. So it is, and it's uh, the short is MASLD, M-A-S-L-D, okay. as opposed to NAFLD, N-A-F-L-D, which was the old um, old nomenclature. Uh, but it really is meant to reflect the you know more of the the robust causes that can result in fat deposition in the liver. Um, you know, elevated BMI, uh, obesity is is the most associated cause with this. However, there have been uh, sort of lean BMI, so those with a normal BMI, but have other risk factors, um, increased waist circumference, elevated blood pressures, um, risks for insulin resistance, just to name a few of the risk factors. But over time, the, the presence of fat, which is inflammatory in the liver, can lead to complications, which is what you know, I think when you're talking about life-threatening, uh, liver failure, cirrhosis or scarring of the liver, um, more likely to be associated with liver cancers. And of course, you know, obesity in general has as many associations outside of the liver as well. But this, this study that you um, had quoted from one of our major journals was really the first to kind of put this in a headline um, and directly associate eating fast foods with the development of, you know, now um, MASLD, uh, as the new term is. So is MASLD a serious condition? It is in the sense that, you know, having having obesity yeah. and then having other potential comorbidities and now having evidence of liver injury related to fat deposition, again, an inflammatory process in the liver, plus or minus, you know, potential that people use other medications that may impact the liver or may drink alcohol, which also impacts the liver. All of that combined, if no changes are made once a patient knows that they may either have or are at risk for, um, it can lead to, in a subset of patients, um, liver failure over the course of, of several years. Um, and so, and that is something that, you know, ultimately is, is treated at end-stage liver disease when patients qualify for liver transplant. So in the seriousness of it, yes, having to get a new organ yeah. to be able to survive is a very serious condition, but it's more common than we think. And so I think um, this is, you know, timely and important discussion. You know, it can impact up to 25% of patients worldwide, and I think we think it impacts more in the U.S. Um, because of, of some of the concerns around obesity here as opposed to other countries. Dr. Kanukin, are all fast foods the same? Uh, is it 
Is there something about it uh, that uh, that makes certain foods more dangerous than others? Just so that our listeners kind of understand whatever the risks are. Yeah. I mean, no, of course, not all fast foods are the same, but in general, convenient fast foods are typically higher in calories and higher in fats um, and often higher in carbohydrates, all of which, and not in the healthy fats that we think of when we think of something like the Mediterranean diet. They're, they're high in, in you know, um, uh, high fructose corn syrup, they're high in saturated fats. So this higher fat and calorie consumption has been linked to higher risk for obesity. And now with this particular study calling out, we know that obesity increases the risk for, for MAFLD, so this metabolic you know, uh, liver, liver injury. Um, but I think what the study called out was that if 20% of your diet is composed of fast food, this high fat, high carb, high calorie, there was this associated liver injury and 20% doesn't seem like a lot. However, um, there certainly are uh, convenient places, quote, fast food places that you could probably make better selections right. than necessarily getting the the quarter pounder um, with some extra um, so we're calling it extra out. dressing. <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, McDonald's. Hopefully, you're not funding this. <laughs> um, but you know, I think I think we can make better um, choices. Even when we go to McDonald's, we can make better choices. We can eat a salad over having True. you know um, a quarter pounder. But I think what we have to be cautious is is that if you take a salad and you dump two, you know, servings of dressing on there, you might as well have, you know, eat, eat, eat the quarter pounder. Though. Quarter pounder if you enjoyed it more. But I, I think in, in in all seriousness, I think life is life is too short, but everything in moderation. And so moderation in this particular study says that if you if you eat fast food more than 20% of the time, that this may increase your risk to develop limber injury. And so once a month, you know, stopping because it's convenient, it's also inexpensive as composed as opposed to eating other sure. you know fresh fruits and vegetables being able and cook a meal um, you know some of our, our listeners may not have the ability to, to do some of the things that we're asking of them and that fast food is is cheap and it's easy um, but it's also been associated with worsening health outcomes so I think that um, the study is is timely and important to just take note and and for people to kind of consider what their current lifestyle looks like understood. Dr. Knight, uh, time for one more question on on yet a different topic, but I want to work this in. Uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, announced the creation of a new Digital Health Advisory Committee to help the agency explore the complex scientific and technical issues related to digital health technologies, such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented reality, virtual reality, wearables, remote monitoring, and software. And they're going to advise the FDA on all issues related to these. Uh, just a quick question in the final moments that we have left. Is this new committee a good idea? Is it needed or is this more bureaucracy? That was a good question. Is it, is it better to have more rules and more committees and more governing bodies and things like that? But yeah, and I think Dr. Kanukin alluded to this well and, is, and and gave a good backdrop on on what we're looking at here. So whether it's everything you know from physician shortages to you know high demand of aging population things like that, we really have to explore all of our kind of technological tools that we can use to our advantage in these cases in face of those strains on the healthcare system. So certainly, digital health is as a big one. Whether it's re remote monitoring, wearables artificial intelligence, virtual reality, so on and so forth. Uh, so I, I think, and and to get to the heart of it, um, I think she also pointed out well too, is that we have an oath to do no harm. So whatever it is that we're using are these new technologies, we want to be sure that it's not actually going to cause more harm. And, and so we do need to look carefully at how they're being used and, and making sure that they're being used safely. Um, so I think the FDA is as good as any other organization um, and probably better considering the, the resources they have to do that. Uh, so I, I think by and large that this will be a good thing to have in place because there's a lot we don't know. We're still learning so much about these digital tools, um, about how they can be used and, and most importantly, how they can be used safely. I appreciate that. And we're going to let that be our final word. I want to thank you, Dr. Kanukin, 
uh, for joining us and for all your great advice and wisdom. And you, Dr. Knight, as always, we love hearing from you. Thanks so much, both of you, for joining us today. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again. Up next, October is Breast Cancer Month, and our expert guides us on what's happening for breast cancer imaging. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? Now, if you've seen a lot of pink everywhere recently, from NFL football uniforms to airlines, there's no need to see an eye doctor. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, with its primary goal of raising awareness about early detection, prevention, and treatment of breast cancer. It's a time for communities, individuals, organizations, and healthcare professionals to come together to support the fight against breast cancer. Breast imaging radiologist Dr. Kristen Robinson from Mayo Clinic in Florida joins us in studio to talk about the essential role of imaging in breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. Dr. Robinson, welcome to our program. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. We are so excited to have you here as well. We've covered a lot of different breast cancer topics uh, on this program, uh, typically around this type of year, uh, October, early November. We've never, I don't think, ever spoken to the radiologist, uh, the imaging expert. Can you explain the role of radiology or imaging physician in breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. Absolutely. And that's part of why I love doing media pieces like this, because I think the general public sometimes is really not aware of what a radiologist even is. Right. So we'll start there. Um, Radiologists are a a physician. They're physicians who are specially trained to read and interpret medical imaging. So breast radiologists further subspecialize and really focus their clinical work on reading all imaging that pertains to the breast, mammograms, ultrasounds, MRIs, and a number of other modalities that I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about today. So as a radiologist who specializes in breast imaging, we are often, and frankly, hopefully, the first one to find a woman's breast cancer. We want to pick it up early and when it's small on a screening mammogram before it ever gets to a size that a woman or her doctor can feel. So we play a major role in really detecting cancers when we hope to find them, which is when they're small and treatable and curable. You mentioned a few techniques, so let's kind of delve into some of those. What are the imaging techniques that are used for the detection of breast cancer? I think most people, most women are aware of what a mammogram is. And if you've had one, you certainly are because they're not always the most comfortable. But a mammogram is certainly our go-to imaging modality to detect breast cancer. Um, Today, most practices are doing what might have heard as a 3D mammogram Mm -hmm. or a tomosynthesis mammogram. And basically, it's a mammogram like we've always had, except now our machines are a bit more sophisticated and can kind of slice the breast, if you will, into multiple slices so that we get a 3D image of it Mm -hmm. instead of just a 2D picture like we used to. So screening mammograms are the most common modality that we see out there and uh, being done today. Let me ask a very specific kind of uh, a little off-kilter question. The executive producer of this show, David Luckin, has been very public, and he's appeared on this show, about his breast cancer as a man. And I guess the simple question that we have, is a mammogram done also in men, or is it different? They can be done in men. The primary difference is that women have the recommendation to undergo screening mammograms beginning at age 40, whereas men don't have formal screening recommendations 
for the most part. There are some small subsets of men that that may not be true for those with hereditary gene mutations, like a BRCA mutation. But most men can get a mammogram if they feel an abnormality, and they absolutely should. Mammograms are fantastic and very safe in men and highly accurate in diagnosing breast cancer or something else if it is something else. So men can and should get mammograms if they feel an abnormality. Let's go over those screening recommendations. Can you just give us kind of the nice headline screen so that listeners out there can remember them? Sure. So all women should be screened with annual mammograms starting at age 40. If you remember anything, that's the big thing to remember is at age 40 every year with a mammogram. Now, in women who have a family history of breast cancer and the family members that are significant to us in this consideration are mom, sister, brother, dad, Um, the first-degree relatives, and in some women, daughter, actually, depending on how the ages work. But basically, if you have a first-degree relative who had breast cancer, if that person was diagnosed, you want to look at the age they were diagnosed and consider starting screening 10 years before that, if that's before age 40 for you. So if mom had breast cancer at 45, that woman should start getting screening at 35 instead. Oh, okay. So that's one thing that can differ, that can make that age a bit lower. Um, The other thing we want to look at is that family history, as well as a few other factors that may lead a doctor to say, you know what, mammograms plus MRI are going to be recommended for you every year, or mammograms plus something else like an MBI, or um, in some places we do contrast-enhanced mammograms. So there are different modalities we can use for women who need more screening than the average mammogram. In general, what are the common signs or symptoms of a breast tumor or breast cancer? What, What should people be looking for? Yeah, we say, you know, really women, we want you to be breast aware. You might hear that that coming from your doctor. And so what that means is being aware of what your breasts feel like, what they look like, and the signs to look for that are concerning that you really should talk to your doctor about and get some imaging for are a lump that is hard or fixated, certainly if a lump is growing. The other thing would be skin dimpling like you get that chicken skin appearance mm-hmm. or an orange peel appearance to the skin or redness at a certain site. And then lastly, nipple discharge, okay. particularly if that nipple discharge is bloody or clear in color. Those are very concerning signs that you should be uh, evaluated for immediately. I appreciate that. Uh, one of the things that comes up in so many parts of medicine is that it seems there's an MRI for everything. Sure. And so I guess the question I have, is there a breast MRI? And we're so used to thinking of MRI for every other organ. Why isn't that replaced a mammogram? Great question. So breast MRI is an imaging modality that we do use and quite often, particularly in women who are at a higher risk of developing breast cancer than the average woman. And how you know your risk is a risk calculator that really you should meet with your doctor to to talk about. But Those women who have been deemed higher than average risk get breast MRIs annually with the mammogram. And the reason it doesn't replace mammography, there's really two reasons. So one, the mammogram will still show us some things that MRIs cannot. So they really work together. Oh, wow. And the other thing is, frankly, there's not access everywhere for every woman to have an MRI. And so we still know that mammograms are the great first-line tool to screen for breast cancer. Got it. Uh, With regards to this screening, this imaging, um, can you explain kind of the essential importance of early detection? Absolutely. So we really have decades of good data that show detecting breast cancer early is when it's not only treatable, but curable. And so outcomes are best in women where we find it on screening modalities and not once it becomes large enough that a woman can feel or um, large enough that you know a, a lymph node in the underarm area is enlarged and can be felt on clinical exam. So the earlier we can find it, the 
more chance of curing it with the least amount of intervention. So the smallest possible surgery, you may not need chemotherapy, um, you know, radiation discussions can happen with your doctor to see if that's necessary. But generally speaking, a lot of data over the several decades that shows early detection saves lives and makes that breast cancer less impactful on a woman's overall health. Are there limitations or challenges in breast cancer imaging? I mean, it makes it sound like it, it, it does such a, a great job, but, but is there something that it, it still can miss? Absolutely. Really dense breast tissue is one of the biggest limitations that as mammographers we we deal with. So we want to find breast cancer when it's small, as I've said over and over, and that is the beauty of screening. But small cancers can be masked in women who have dense breast tissue. And so for that reason, there's a lot of public attention on the topic of breast density. Uh, states and soon at a federal level in this nation are um, obligated by law to inform women that they have dense breast tissue when we see it on a mammogram. And we encourage women to talk with their doctor about what that means so that you're aware of what it means and what you could possibly do about it so that we can help screen you better for breast cancer in that setting. Let me ask uh, a, a kind of a question because it, it sounds like certain breast anatomy uh, makes this harder. What if someone has a breast implant? Yeah, great question. So breast implants are very, very common. Um, and they do make imaging more difficult. Okay. Frankly, it's more challenging for us because in order to visualize the tissue on a mammogram, extra views have to be done. Um, the breast tissue kind of has to be pulled off that implant, so to speak, and compressed so that we can actually see through that tissue. And we do lose some visualization of certain parts of the breast because of the breast implant. So in those women, you know, knowing your breast density is important and knowing your risk of breast cancer is really important because if you qualify for another type of study, some of those limitations uh, are improved. You know, we don't have as many limitations as the mammogram. And then in those women, I would also say really be very breast aware of your physical exam. Um, the implant can push the breast tissue more in a way that is easier for a woman to palpate or feel a breast cancer mm -hmm. than in a woman who doesn't have an implant. Mm. So it's almost a benefit if you think about it. You know, you might be able to huh. detect something smaller because the implant is kind of pushing it forward. I see. So make sure you're doing your breast exams um, and are, are kind of aware of your breast tissue because you may have a better chance of feeling something than a woman who doesn't have an implant. Let's say so you are working, you, you see uh, a tumor on the skin. Uh, this is more about the healthcare team question. Where in that care process does the radiologist sit in terms of, okay, I see this. Where do they sit? Surgery, not surgery. Or, or do they sit just up before that decision? So the radiologist is going to be the one that detects it on your screening mammogram and then calls you back to get additional images. Okay. And usually at that appointment, if we see a suspicious mass, we would recommend a biopsy. So at that stage is where I become patient-facing. I go into the room. I meet you, let you know what I found and what is recommended. Breast radiologists do the biopsies, so we're the ones that perform them. Um, and then after that, we take a careful look at what the pathology results are, make sure that we agree with what we're seeing and that it all fits. And from there, we help coordinate the care team that you would then see, which is often, yes, the surgeons, oncologists, radiation oncologists. Um, and our involvement from that point is a bit more behind the scenes, but still really integral we help determine maybe the extent of surgery needed based on what other imaging we do. And if a cancer has spread further, we are the ones that can help to see that on the other medical imaging that we do. Um, for women who have chemotherapy and surgery, we do their follow-up imaging. So we're the ones who read that afterwards and determine how the tumor has responded and help the surgeons determine how much surgery is needed maybe even what surgery is needed, and follow-up regimens from there. So initially, 
we're behind the scenes. Then we come patient facing, we do your biopsy, talk to you at that time. And then again, we're kind of behind the scenes after that. But we really play a role throughout diagnosis all the way through treatment and beyond, which is why I love what I do. I get to be a part of that from start to finish. And it's just a very rewarding career. One last question in the moment we have left. Are there any recent advancements or breakthroughs in breast cancer imaging that our listeners should be made aware of that excite you? Absolutely. So I think the biggest promise that we have to breast cancer imaging is functional studies of the breast. So again, mammograms really look at breast anatomy, which is excellent. It's a great screening tool. But things like MRI really look at blood flow to the breast tissue. Uh, MBI, again, looks at the energy of the cells in the breast. Contrast mammograms, they look at blood flow to the breast tissue. All of that allows us to see cancers much, much smaller um, and really look at both breasts in their entirety. So those functional studies that are being ordered more, are being recommended more, there's a reason, and it's because the ability to pick up breast cancer is excellent. And so we're doing more of those, and I think advancements in those kind of studies are going to keep coming. I love hearing this. Dr. Robinson, thank you so much for stopping by and joining us. This has been just so incredibly helpful to all of us. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. We have been talking to Dr. Kristen Robinson. Uh, She is a breast imaging radiologist at Mayo Clinic in Florida. And she's been talking to us about breast cancer imaging in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Lucky. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is a relook at pancreatic cancer, one of the deadliest cancers. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.